in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Justin well. Milbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome, all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Dustin Melbardis, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Brian Fry. How are you doing tonight, Brian? I'm doing well. Good evening, everybody. So we have a guest. We've got a nice guest from New York City, uh, returning to us for the first time since he was on one of our earliest episodes uh, when we covered The Power of One. Uh, please welcome back Ben Fry. How are you, Ben? I'm doing really, really good. It's good to talk about Doom with you guys. And that's it. That's right. We are going to be talking about Dune. Now, it's uh, 2021, and my, I, I told my friend that I was going to record a podcast on Dune, and would you believe it? He had no idea there was an earlier version than the one that just came out. It's not shocking. Not shocking at all. <laughs> had no idea it was a book either. The look of shock on his face was, whoa, really? He, he said, I only, know the one, uh, I only know the one that came out this year and the one with The Rock. I looked at him like, what, you mean, you mean Doom? And he's like, oh, yeah, Doom? yeah, that one. <laughs> oh, that's unfortunate. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> that's brutal. Ben, you're uh, in New York City. What is your favorite New York City movie? New York City movie? That's, that is a good question. Probably Miracle on 34th Street. That's the first thing I can think of. <laughs> hey, and we're kind of in the season for that, aren't yeah. we? Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, I end up, it turns out that I work for Macy's, so... <laughs> Make makes sense. <laughs> uh, are you an elf, or you actually work there year-round? I'm an associate buyer, so not quite, but that sounds more interesting. I would say, what about you, uh, Brian? Uh, the 1990 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> yeah, it's sick. Yeah, I, um, that is, I, I actually remember watching The Secret of the Ooze more than the original one, but I yeah, I like them. I've got love in my heart for the original. It was so dark for a kid's movie. Uh, <laughs> it, it, yeah, I just, I dug it. Those are always the best. Would you say, and I'm, I'm going to toss this up to you, speaking of tossing, the pizza in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is the best looking pizza I think I've ever seen across any media platform. I think even the, uh, even the spoiled pizza that they, you know, do a dirge to looked pretty good. <laughs> Uh, my favorite New York City movie, I, it was a toss-up between uh, Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, and Gangs of New York. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I had to go very with similar. the one that has... <laughs> very similar. Uh, I had to go with the one that has John C. Riley in it, so I went with Gangs of New York with my favorite. Home Alone 2, I actually prefer it to Home Alone, you know, the, the first one. I obviously live here, so I guess I'm biased, but I it was one of the first movies that made me want to be here because i just thought everything in new york city was living in the plaza so yeah there's a lot of splendor to it the way that 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 movie uh shows off new york ben what was the last movie that you saw the last movie that i saw other than dune 1984 was dune part one 2021 <laughs> uh for and I, it was probably the last 10 movies that i saw so 
<laughs> giving myself away early. Yeah, I guess you can say it runs in the family, huh, Brian? Oh, it does. It does indeed. I, I got to tell you, I, I was able to hold myself off for about 18 hours to see it the first time in theaters, which was surprising. It took a lot of constitution for that. And then as soon as I saw it in theaters, I came home and I watched it again on HBO Max and then again on HBO Max and then again on HBO Max. So, yep. uh, yeah, I, I, I hit the nail pretty hard on that uh, the week it came out. Well, like a lot of the kids these days, I was actually doing a no-do November. Um, I, I wanted to make sure that we recorded this episode uh, before I saw the new Dune, uh, 2021's Dune. The last movie I saw, uh, and I actually brought it up on our last episode of Retro Movie Roundtable at our top 10 list of 2011, was Carnage from 2011. Oh, yeah. Uh, that is a, it's also a New York movie. Um, but it shows the uh, the the difficulties of uh, being a politically correct parent trying to maneuver your way around the social graces of dealing with a faux pas that their kids got into uh, very much devolves into a different a different sort of carnage. And no, I'm not talking about that Tom Hardy Spider-Man stuff either. Brian, I think it's finally it's time, right? How how many episodes oh, have we done? It's time. It's like uh, too many, too many to not get to this yet. And it is time for 1984's Dune, starring Kyle MacLachlan, Sting, uh, Francesca Annis, Leonardo Cimino, Brad Dourif, Jose Ferrer, so many other people to name as well. Uh, released in 84, uh, it grossed uh, $30 million, nearly $31 million. It placed 28th in the box office that year. Um, the movie that placed directly ahead of it was Conan the Destroyer, and the movie that placed uh, directly behind it was The Gods Must Be Crazy. The number one movie that year, Beverly Hills Cop, if you can believe it. That's, uh, uh, that's fair. <laughs> for Dune, the IMDb rating is 6.5. Our Rotten Tomatoes uh, critics tomato meter is right in the middle, 51%. Uh, maybe lower than I would have expected. The audience scores a little higher at 66%. Uh, it actually did get nominated for an Academy Award, uh, and that was for Best Sound. So I'll, I'll start with our guest here, Ben. <laughs> it's funny that you ask, because um, I've probably seen this movie countless times, because if you can't tell already, Brian has always liked this movie. Uh, Brian is my brother. So when I was five years old or six years old, he, he would have been 15 or 16, which is about the age a lot of people who start getting into Dune are, so he was watching it a lot. So I was really young uh, when I started watching it, but it definitely captivated me. It, it, I always liked you know, sci-fi, horror, that type of thing, so I, I just gravitated toward it very early. Would you say that you were lucky to have it be introduced to you at such a young age by a superfan brother? Hmm... I don't know. I guess, yeah. I mean, I think it got me into the... I, I saw the movie, obviously, before I read the book. I, I didn't read the book until I was like 13 or 14. So um, I kind of had it backwards from a lot of other people I talked to because I kind of had the Lynch films images in my head when I first read the book. And then I, you know, over time uh, came around to... Uh, when I stopped watching the movie so much earlier on, I kind of um, had other images in my head that were probably closer to what Frank Herbert was <laughs> imagining. So... Mm. Yeah, and 
And Brian, uh, so you, we know of this time that you introduced, uh, we'll say, the Church of Dune uh, into your family. Uh, when, when did you first become an acolyte of this movie? Uh, I actually got into this movie based on my uncle, uh, Bill Fry. Um, he was my first introduction to it. Uh, Dad was always a Lord of the Rings uh, fan, and uh, Bill was a big Dune fan. So I uh, I kind of walk both sides of the street uh, when it comes to you know I don't really pick a a side on fantasy or science fiction. Uh, interestingly enough, this was a Christmas present uh, to me. I got my first DVD player and it and Hunt for Red October and I think Goldeneye were my first three DVDs. Now this was the first time that I came in with a critical eye. Um, so Ben, did you expect anything different to like approach the movie because you knew you'd be recording on it? I think I was looking for more technical things a little bit more than I normally would, but I, I will say, and we'll get there, but, uh, the, the technical things definitely stand out. So it wasn't very hard to, <laughs> to notice. Um, so I, I don't think, um, I, I didn't experience, it's, it's a very specific movie. So I, I don't think I, um, experienced it much differently this time around otherwise that's a that's a good point it's a specific movie what what do you what do you mean by that just is like you already it's, know you've got your picture yeah of it in i your mean head, it, so you already know sort of right i mean it's it's weird dark high 80s camp <laughs> it's sci-fi you know it's um there's nothing else like it i really it's, dig it, the camp it's a study. It's it's one of those David Lynch things that he's really known for because I think that he has fairly drastically different followers for each of his films, and they're all a little campy. Yeah, you can almost say there's like a a, a version of like Lynchian campiness, uh, and I I don't I don't think I'd made that made that particular uh, observation before, which is that. Uh, being a Lynch fan of Mulholland Drive isn't the same as being a Lynch fan of Blue Velvet or Dune or Twin Peaks. Uh, like, like that's you definitely fall into these subcategories. Um, and so, like Dune, Dune was not like a constant rewatch for me, um, but I have always liked it. Uh, and when I approached it this time, um, especially when I, I had to start thinking in my head about the ranking, I was just thinking to myself, like, do I just really like this movie? Where am I going to put this on like a sliding scale? Uh, of course, that's much later in the podcast. Um, I, I, I guess this might be the simplest question of all, but uh, Ben, overall, you enjoy this movie? I would say I have a nostalgia for the movie, and I love the story that it's based on, and it has some really good visual qualities, which I can you know give some specifics in a, in a minute, but um, I do enjoy it, but I... I find myself getting a little bored through the second half. Oh, what do you think about that answer, Brian? I, uh, I mean, I get that. Uh, there are a lot of very valid points out there on, or, or very valid criticisms out there that can be laid at the feet of this movie. Um, I've always tackled 1984's Dune as David Lynch doing a fan fiction of Dune, and that sort of compartmentalization of it leads to, I think, a, um, a better willingness to like it uh, despite its inadequacies. I think I fit into, if, you, if I had to create a group, 
uh, what you just said, a willingness to like it despite its inadequacies, I think I fall into that group. Is that yeah. I think I think what I notice is that I find myself picking things out that like oh, that doesn't look so good, or I, mm-hmm. I see things like uh, wow that was clunky, or I wonder if they ever considered doing this instead. It doesn't matter if it's imperfect or in some instances just it's hard to say poorly done, but it's just like it doesn't it it falls strangely, like it falls flat, or it's like that's an odd choice. I'm still going like I'm still I pull myself to like it, um, so I enjoy the movie as well. Though it's not on a uh, a yearly rewatch basis, you know, I, if if they were to, you know, I I'm going to do the same uh, ritual. It sounds like that you guys did for Dune when the Matrix comes out. When, when when the Matrix Four comes out, I'll be there and I will be rewatching that again. That is D- Dune to y'all. Like Matrix is that to me. Sure, I get that, yeah. and that's a good choice too. So uh, we are gonna talk about 1984's Dune, but before we do. Uh, we have to take a quick advertisement break, uh, and we when we come back, we're going to talk a lot about this movie. Uh, spoilers ahead. If you haven't seen this movie, give us a pause and go and take some time out of your day to, to really just dive into this uh, cinematic experience, and then come back and listen to us talk about it. Advertisements ahead. Welcome to the Flashback Flicks Retro Movie Podcast. I'm Ricky. I'm Grayson. And every week we review a movie from the past and reflect on things we miss, things we loved, and things we want to see again. Yeah, because we believe any movie worth watching is worth watching again. So if you like films, friendship, and a lot of callbacks, I mean, just so many callbacks, then subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever RSS feeds go for like-minded, movie-loving individuals. Like you. What happens when two modern film fans go back and rewatch all the old classic films from yesteryear to see if they hold up? You get the Classic Film Jerks podcast. Find the Classic Film Jerks podcast on all the major platforms. And we are back, and here is Brian to present the plot summary of 1984's Dune. It's the year 10191, and the known universe is ruled by the Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV, and the most precious substance is the Spice Melange, which is only found on one planet, Arrakis, also known as Dune. In a political hotbed climate, the Emperor seemingly wrests control of Dune from House Harkonnen and has given it to their sworn enemies, House Atreides. This is a trap, however, to get House Atreides out into the open where they can be destroyed. A player in all of this is the Bene Gesserit Sisterhood, who for generations have been manipulating bloodlines in order to produce the Kwisatz Haderach, the supreme being. Paul Atreides, son of the Duke, may just be that being. The film starts with Paul and introduces you to his teachers and his father's greatest advisors as they depart for Dune. Before they go, Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Mahayam, the head of the Bene Gesserit Sisterhood, comes to test Paul with pain, a test that no man has ever been tested against. He survived having withstood more pain than any woman child born has ever withstood. Once on Arrakis, the Duke and his son are faced with many challenges, including constant threats to their lives. In the end, none of it matters because the trap is sprung and the Atreides doctor is found to be the traitor, lowering House Atreides' shields and delivering the Duke to the Baron Harkonnen, who was able to overcome the Atreides' armies uh, with the aid of the Emperor's cracked Sardaukar troops, 
revealing to the Trades that the Emperor's hand was in on their betrayal. Paul and his mother flee into the desert, where they enlist with the Fremen, the people of the desert. These battle and environment-hardened desert people become the army that the new exiled Duke Paul uh, needs to wrest control of Arrakis and the universe. His own power and knowledge grow with more exposure to the spice and eventually in the taking of the water of life. This substance confirms that he is indeed the Kwisatz Haderach, as no male has ever survived the drug. Paul then leads the Fremen to crush the Harkonnen and the Emperor, becoming the Emperor himself. Yes, I intentionally left out the weirding modules. We'll get to that later. <laughs> oh, especially after they were all destroyed. I, I wanted to start this off with just the most insightful question here. And I'm going to start with you, Brian. What do you want to talk about with this movie? I'd like to talk about kind of the genesis of it, um, it, it, it getting made. And then I'd like to talk a little bit about David Lynch and what he brings to the party. So the genesis of the, of the movie getting made or, or this, the, are you talking about like the story that it comes from? Uh, a little bit of everything, just, just I, kind of the, a little, little background on it. Well, there's a documentary out there about another gentleman who is uh, kind of taking on the mantle of making this in the first place. Now, this is 1984, so we're coming off of uh, a very successful Star Wars franchise, uh, one in which Frank Herbert nearly sued over copyright infringement to a lot of pieces of Dune that uh, George Lucas had borrowed. Um, so uh, it was really... A uh, kind of a sad story that this did not get more, I guess, press. Um, people looked at it as this kind of, you know, uh, poor man Star Wars. And, and that's always been something that I've dis not only disagreed with strongly, but also kind of hate. So um, when this first party uh, had a failed attempt, it then fell on uh, David Lynch's uh, shoulders, who, as we mentioned, is a very campy uh, director, depending on what films of his you like. So uh, it was always going to have um, an oddity to it, if that's that's a fair way to say it. And, uh, you know, like I said, I, I definitely think that it, it's got its place and a Dune a fan of the book can definitely love it. Um, you just got to kind of suspend your your knowledge a bit. I'm not a huge fan of the of comparing it to Star Wars either, to think of it like a budget bin Star Wars. But with the amount of time that we get in the movie presented, there's this just a glimpse of this universe of the way that things work. We get an idea of, you know, we have um, this overarching power. We have the source of, of some power, the spice, that it seems as if this universe could really be fleshed out, um, which makes a lot of sense and is just um, mouthwatering to me. Uh, what do you think about this universe? What do you think about this space that we're living in? I'll throw this up to both of you. Um, I mean, you know, I, I think that's what I like about it the most. That's why I like the book, and that's why I... I'm just prone to like this movie, you know, regardless of its flaws. And I love the new one. Pretty much every version of Dune, you know, I'll be somewhat invested in because I like the lore. Um, I think the world building is is as rich, you know, as, as the Lord of the Rings. And I think they are, a lot of people say they're comparable or, or Game of Thrones. 
um you know i'm i feel like there's a there's a faction for everyone um i'm i'm a big fan of the benny jesuit and all of their um you know the, the mechanics that they're working behind the scenes to uh, I, I think there's just a lot of mystery i think that it has really really good villains um interesting heroes or anti-heroes which we can get into you know whether paul and the atreides are really a hero or not they're you know there's also like a lot of um kind of commentary on um some of the things that they're doing wrong but at the end of the day there's a lot of uh, gray in between it's not just black and white in these characters whereas you know you have like a star wars that maybe it is kind of just like the good and the bad the you know the dark side the jedi i think this one um you know is special because it's it's not that way you are thrust into a situation where because you've got Kyle McLaughlin starring even though he's the son of the duke he's he's leading the house he he's who we're focused on, uh, that it does kind of seem as if Atreides are the good guys here. But I actually really like, and one of you mentioned Game of Thrones, I like the idea that there are several different houses, different spheres of influences. So the, the, you kind of touched on this. Now this is going to go beyond, mostly beyond content for the 1984 version, but it is a deep world. You know, they touch on the Bene Gesserit, but you also have the Bene Tleilax, Face Dancers, the Chome Company, you know, Fish Speakers, Fremen, you the know, guild. Ix- Ixians, yeah, the Guild, Mentats that they sort of touch on, you know, the Sardaukar and how they're trained. Um, you know, it's, it's the, yeah, I mean, the Souk School, um, and even Duncan Swordmasters of the Ginas. So, I mean, there's so many things that they touch on on the, I think, around 30-odd books that they have now published between Herbert and his son, Brian. Um, so it's, I don't know, I, it's just one of those things where this is such a deep rabbit hole that if someone did get into it, whether it be from the movie or read the first book or just watched this new movie, it, I mean, you can get Alice in Wonderland lost in this for a very long time. Is it better that they barely mention some of this stuff? Or would it have been more cohesive to keep only, let's say, eight or ten of these players, of these uh, references in the movie, and just kind of conveniently leave out the rest of the lore surrounding the source material is it better that they I feel like it's a little bit of fan service that has to be done, right? Is that they say Duncan is here, but in all reality, does Duncan matter to this movie at all? They corrected the Duncan Idaho issue in this movie in the new one. Like they made him a far more prominent character because he is far more pro- prominent in the book series. Also, I mean, I would say just in general, when you're talking about how many aspects of the world that they're talking about in the film, um, I I hate to talk about the new film again, but, you know, the new film, I think that's the number one thing that it does differently. So this film, um, you know, we, Brian just mentioned a thousand different, you know, factions that exist in this universe. Maybe this film focuses on 10, but the way that it describes them out loud um the uh, the you know uh, the voiceovers all the exposition is very heavy in this film and i think it's a very prime example of um you know it, it's a good lesson in when you should not uh tell and you should just show 
And I think that's the biggest thing that, you know, anyone who goes to see the new film, they'll be like, oh, okay, you don't need to, like, voice over, like, the Benny Tlylax made that spider thing. <laughs> you know, you can just see it, and it can just be there, and you can understand like, oh, like, you, you know, the audience is smart enough. We we have learned uh, that we don't need these whispering voiceovers. So I think that's the, probably the screenplay is probably what I find in this movie to be the biggest challenge. Ah, you know, I, I love that you brought that up. Because, you know, show don't tell because we, we mentioned just moments ago, like not to compare this to Star Wars. And what does Star Wars start with? Every single one starts with a scroll. Here's a whole bunch of info that for the if you haven't seen any of those movies before, here's a bunch of nonsense gobbledygook about <laughs> things you don't understand. And I actually, because I was trying to be critical here, I couldn't tell if I loved or hated the voiceovers. I like inner monologue. Sometimes I like the idea that um, if you let the actor act it, then we can feel the emotion as opposed to having it told, I'm thinking about my father right now. No, I, I actually think that's a perfect, I have an example of it actually, because um, so after Paul's Gomjabar test with the Reverend Mother, Lady Jessica walks in the, and there's a voiceover, you know, she, she sees her son is alive, he survived the test, and, you know, you see the look on her face and Francesca Annis has this fantastic look, like conveying this already, but then there's a voiceover that says, my son lives. And, and, I, and I was like, I didn't need that. Francesca Annis told me that with her face. So um, there are a lot of examples of that. Um, there's another one, and this is actually my favorite example of just camp in the film. Also Francesca Annis, who I love. I actually thought she had one of the strongest performances. I don't want to just bash her the whole time. But um, as Lady Jessica, they're walking down in a cave and she just goes, moisture. <laughs> and that wasn't even yeah. Voiceover, but there's a, there is a yeah. lot of exposition that's just not uh, necessary. I don't hate it. I think Ben's right. Some of it was not necessary, but the inner monologues on this, um, I think, call it sixty forty, do help the the watcher along. And I would rather have something like that than a rolling scroll. Something that's a little more subtle. Because because I will say it slaps you in the face these uh, these voiceovers. It, it can be distracting to me at least, and and it takes away from getting like having a chance for these actors to shine and to act, uh, which I, maybe is the the like the number one thing I can think of whenever I I approach a movie for this podcast is like individual performances. Um, but you know we can we can take the time now with with the the performances in this movie but are there are there performances that are like you know I really like the way that this group of people act I pretty much I I like the initial introduction of Paul with the three of uh you know Dr. Yue and um uh the Mentat and uh uh Gurney Halleck that sequence I think is a lot of fun um it's introducing you to people that are that are fairly important to the film obviously Paul being the star of it. I I think that there's definitely some strong performances and then some weaker ones. I mean, I think um, as as a casting choice, I think Kyle MacLachlan was a little bit old. He, I think I looked it up. He was 25 years old, and the character is 1,000 percent. Yeah, 1,000 percent agree with that. I actually right. struggled really hard to find like who was a child or a more childlike actor during that time. 
Yeah, see, I didn't even try at the time. I mean, not not everyone can look like they're 15 forever, like Timothy Chalamet, but, um, but um, but yeah, I understand why Lynch chose McLaughlin though, because his, I mean, his performance is super solid. He seems very believable and invested in what's going on around him. Um, one example, he had a pretty electrifying performance when uh, he's relaying his waking visions to Jessica when they're stranded in the rocks of the desert, and he just seems very like shaken by it. Um, I thought that was good. Um, so he was, I thought Kyle McLaughlin overall, even though he m might not have been perfectly cast in terms of his age, I think he held his own. Um, and then Francesca Annis, I thought she was fantastic. There was definitely an element of camp, like I talked about earlier, but I enjoy it. And, um, and she definitely, uh, holds my attention the entire time. Yes. He's, he's shown to seem very young, though we know he's not. I definitely, I think that his performance is one of the few things that gets stronger as the movie continues. And part of that, again, is the casting is he's supposed to be this young, I wouldn't say naive, but this young person who hasn't mastered all these things yet. I, I think it's harder to believe that, you know, just given the age factor, just that was a challenge from the get go. But I do think I do see that transition. And I do think it was very strong. His performance specifically was stronger near the end of the film when he, you know, yells back at the Reverend Mother and is giving the speech to the Fremen about what they need to do to overthrow the Imperium. Yeah, I agree with that too. And we're talking about, you know, House Atreides with, with uh, Paul. I laughed a couple times. With the, I laughed more than a couple times when they refer to this hero as Paul. You know, all of a sudden in the middle of a sand-blasted desert. In the middle of this desert, you see Gurney just... Paul? <laughs> is that is that you? <laughs> like the, the the name sometimes took away. So like the you young the, cup. Yeah, yeah. Like like eventually getting getting there uh, really made me feel like wow this this is a powerful main character. But he's representing this house like House Atreides, and I, I want to talk about like this this plot this plot of deception of uh, Atreides and um, Harkonnen, and then overall for working for the 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 Emperor Shaddam. What, what what is it about like this feud? I almost feel like, you know, it, it's kind of just a a mechanism. Like the 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 plot is more of a mechanism for the underlying themes of the book, which I think of one of the faults of you know David Lynch's version is that you know to you and you haven't seen the new one or uh, you haven't read the book, right? Correct. See, to to most people, and and you rightly, you know, would, you know, by just watching the the Lynch version, but you do think Paul is the hero because of the way that the film ends. But in the book, it's it's a lot more complicated, and in the new movie, um, and it's like he's he, you know, has these visions of of basically billions of people are going to die, like this holy war is going to be um, launched, you know, against the Imperium, and I know all these things are going to happen, a lot of bad things are going to happen, you know, in my name, and just because I want revenge or whatever, like that's, he just makes those decisions anyway. Um, and I, I'm, I'm oversimplifying it a little bit, but he, he's not like your typical hero, I guess you would say. Yeah, I'd agree with that too. And, and this is a weird thing that, that I always have to kind of check myself when talking about this movie or the new movie is my brain automatically plugs in deficient information. So like when I was writing the, the plot summary for this movie, I found myself adding stuff that aren't in the movie or that isn't in the movie. And it's hard for me to separate my knowledge of the three and, and really focus on content of one. 
Yeah, and I think that's that's a <clears throat> underlying challenge of the this particular podcast in general. What's the deal with these Harkonnens like body disfigurement stuff? So that so that's not in the book, um, and actually that's another one of my complaints. I f- I feel like I have a lot of complaints. I actually love this movie. As I said, I watch it all, over and over again. But um, I mean, they're I think they're just trying to show they are sadistic in the book, um, and they you know they're dark. They're um, but they're not, you know, the Baron is, um, clinically obese or whatever. Uh, and he does kind of hover. Um, so that he, you know, the floating fat man quote from the emperor, like that is in the book, but he doesn't have, um, like these sores on his face and all these things. I think that was the Lynch factor. There, there was a lot of, um, you know, Lynchizing, um, visually where it, like the pustules on the Baron's face, like I, to me, that was too much. I was like, this is you know, it was just a little gross. It's gross, right? Um, so that's, that's yeah. That's, you're supposed to feel that way. So you're to suppo- me, the, yeah, right. And, and and you're you're supposed to be, but but in the book, you know, the 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 thing that makes the Harkonnens, and I mean, they are a little bit, uh, I, you could say, you know, the Baron's a little bit campy in the book, but in this film, I I think that it's really just Lynch, a stylistic decision by Lynch to make them gross. Um, that's I think that's what I would say to that. Well, I mean, I, and that's the Baron is quite gross. And we have that in this movie, we have some young man. I don't know if it's familial or just this is one of the people that are part of our clan. Brought in and he's feasted upon through his heart plugs. Give me some details about this. I mean, I mean maybe it is just because it's in the movie, but is this just meant to make us feel like, oh, these guys are gross and I'm going to equate gross with bad. And I don't want to root for these guys. Yeah, the heart plug thing is a Lynch piece too. It's it's not really in the books. Um, I think that he had, as a director, and I could see this happening. Is I think he just kind of had a field day making the villains even more villainous. Um, they are, you know, they're they're meant to uh, provoke a sense of gluttony anyway. Uh, ah, a sense of yeah. excess, um, you know, they are because they had ruled Dune for so long. They were a very wealthy house, um, but all of their prestige was purchased. Whereas uh, that was the dichotomy: the Atreides was earned with loyalty and respect. Um, so, you know, there is a good versus evil piece to the books, but you know, as you read on in the series. You know, there's a quote in the book. It's I fear that the Atreides banner will come to mean evil things one day. So it, you know, it is a roller coaster. It doesn't, you know, start or end with anybody wearing a white hat. If it were House Atreides controlling Dune, then we have the possibility of absolute power corrupting absolutely. But because it's not House Atreides, because it is the Fremen, it's been two years that. Paul has been leading the super awesome group to become more awesome. Like, like, and we, we get sort of a flash forward that um, I, I think that's where we sort of like delineate. Oh, now we're definitely rooting for these guys. So I think um, with the Atreides, I, I think part of, you know, a theme is colonialism. And it's like, um, you know, you don't, no matter what the intention is, that's still what it is. They're coming in here and plundering these resources and it's really the Fremen's home. Like that's kind of what Frank Herbert was, I I think was getting at. 
Um, so like the, the Atreides are even, I think he, he even, there's a quote of him even saying this out there, like, even if you have the best intention, um, you know, you can go in and really mess stuff up. He said it a lot more eloquently than that, but, um, you know, that was kind of his, his point with, um, with what happens with the Atreides and, and really, yeah, you are supposed to be rooting for the Fremen the whole time. Um, you know, I, I actually just personally enjoy the Bene Gesserit and the Harkonnens and the Imperial house. I, I like a lot of the palace intrigue. That's what draws me to the story, um, but I understand, you know, and feel in the moment that you're, you know, you're rooting for the Fremen. Yeah, there's a lot of of human condition in these stories, but it's it is a dissertation on religion and politics uh, at its core, and I think it it the it may not show through completely in the movie, especially the 1984 one, but it's still there. And I feel like that's, that's the gold that, uh, that this franchise will eventually trade in is the fact that it is steeped in a very rich, uh, socio political religious, uh, atmosphere. Now about this movie, let's, let's just, let's first with this movie and then pepper in as much of what else you want to talk about, about them. But, um, that was something I, I couldn't tell. I couldn't tell if I wanted way more or if I wanted way less. Um, and I feel like you have the info to convince me that I would want more of this particular faction. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like um, I, I think that their mission and the way that they're moving everything kind of behind the scenes is just interesting to me and to see how they kind of interact with all of the other factions, you know, and the story, or basically, I would say, control them, um, just kind of secretly. Uh, their mission, obviously, which is touched on in the movie, is, you know, to bring forth the Kwisatz Haderach, who is someone who can, um, you know, reach ancestral memory that they can't reach, uh, and ga- basically gain information to um, plan out a future that they think is, is good for the future of humankind. I mean, it's a very grandiose ambition. Um, but I, I feel like that that's their motivation, but the, it, it's very, they're very ends justify the means. So and there's their motivation... a reverend mother, like with every, like every different room, whether it's like a futuristic room or it's a room with a bunch of plants growing in, or even on a different planet, there seems to be reverend mothers everywhere. So the, so the, the Bene Gesserit, you know, they're, they're this school of, um, women who basically, you know, they, they, they take the spice. They're, they're women who, um, they already have the ability through their genetics because they've been, um, it's basically a eugenics cult. <laughs> they've been, um, you know, crossing bloodlines over Tell thousands me more. of years, you know, <laughs> they've been crossing bloodlines over thousands of years. And, um, when they take this spice, some of them can access their female, memory their female ancestors memories like that's that's it's called i think other memory um and basically like they have all this information at their disposal to um you know just kind of move things forward in the direction that they want to so they they have this school that's set up to look like a religion to the rest of the society um and they like kind of marry off a lot of the you know the best students from the school into the noble houses so lady jessica that's what happened with her she went to the Benny jesuit school and then she was married off to duke leto i think he like purchased her or something it's kind of he's, fucked up. He, she's um, her she's his concubine right uh so like still still a uh like a possession but not at the same level as a wife I and mean, he he regrets this um in his 
uh, in his moments before his fall is uh, he, he wish he would have married Jessica. Right. Um, but no, so that, he... that's a cool explanation. I, I didn't I, I didn't have it put the way that you had it. Well, in the film, in this film specifically, um, something that they didn't touch on is is that the Benny Gesserit, one of the things they do is they plant religions. To Brian's point, a lot of it is um, how religion's kind of used as a weapon. Um, and in, in this story, you know, the Fremen have this this belief that this Messiah is going to come because the Bene Gesserit have planted it on this planet. Uh, and they, they even have their own Reverend Mother. You know, like you said, there's one in every room. Well, that's because the Bene Gesserit have infiltrated this planet within the last thousands of years. They do this everywhere. They set up these beliefs, you know, in, in these societies um, so that they can use it to their advantage if, if one of them gets stranded there or if... Um, you know, and because they have all these powers, they're able to kind of manipulate basically everyone around them. Um, so I don't know. I, I think it's just interesting. They're a very interesting part of it for me, um, for that reason. But it, it, it's weird because they never touch on that. Like, why are all these people expecting this Messiah to come? Um, they do a better job of that, I think, in the new movie. But in in this <laughs> film, in the end, in this film, he actually makes it rain and stuff, which doesn't happen in the book. Yeah, and for me, that only happens at certain types of clubs. Uh, Brian, uh, the, the, what I asked about the Benny Gesserit, I was curious, and I wanted to like hear that exact same thing from Ben. Give me another faction in this movie, or give me another like what's like a little taste of of something about maybe it was the Chome Company or one of these other factions that like you said, oh, they should have spent way more time on this in the 80, 1984 movie, or it's like. They actually put way too much attention into what's what's one of these uh, details. I would say that I don't necessarily think that they needed to spend more time on it in this movie, but it is definitely something worth looking into in a deeper dive of of the books or core material. Uh, would be the Mentats. So Fufir Howitt uh, is a basically a, a human. He's a human representation of a computer. So in this future, uh, they have uh, they they went through basically a giant war thousands of years prior against the machines that they created. So they now have laws against making machines with uh, that mimic the mind of a human. Um, so their solution to this are these you know super highly educated human computers. They are called mentats. Uh, and they are basically the, I, I would say almost the exact opposite of the Ben Gesserit. And that's why, um, and I'm not sure if they really go in, I don't think they really go into it in this movie, but, uh, uh, Fufir is always very distrusting of Jessica. So it's, uh, it's definitely a, a The men don't trust the Ben Gesserit Correct. in general. And and uh, it's, uh, you know, and Piter DeVries is another mentat for the Harkonnens. So another thing that it seems like everybody's got one, to, to your point with the, the Bene Gesserit, um, it's because they serve their they serve their purpose as well. You know what this makes me think of, y'all? And I'm not going to loop in that other franchise. I'm going to loop in this new one. This, this, the, even the idea of houses is the Game of Thrones is that every, every house has a maester. But they also mm -hmm. likely have some representative of the seven or whatever their religion is. Um, that that's and I I dig that no matter what the franchise is. Is it's kind of, it's you you need to have uh, it's uh, political intrigue. The idea that like uh, just a little bit of power gained 
if it's a 30-year plot, but we end up having you know, two more stones on our scale, is is very fun. And something that you don't get in, I, I'm going to say, you just don't get it in this movie. You guys, as being super fans, uh, know a lot of this stuff. As someone who only has this movie, it's fun to talk to you about this. But as far as the movie, you know, a, a film was made and uh, David Lynch was was running things. How do you, this could not have been done in a book. How do you like some of these sequences where you have a drop of water, you have an eyeball, and then just a hand coming at the screen? And, then, you know, maybe there's only one uh, voiceover that just says, the second moon. How do you like these little trippy waking dream sequences in the middle of this movie? It's it's funny that you brought that up because um, in terms of cinematography, I feel like there are, and this is definitely one of the strengths, there's some strong visuals. Um, just a couple examples. I love the like gilded, golden, golden openings of like the Space and Guild Highliner as the Atreides ships are uh, flying into it. Um, and then t- the scene that you were just talking about is when um, also his little sister Alia's fetus is like in the yep. womb and it's, it's very unsettling during Paul's vision. Um, and, and then it comes back during uh, the water of life scene when Jessica takes the water of life. So I actually prefer, this is one thing I can say about this movie. I, I prefer that dark interpretation of Paul's visions. Um, it, whether, you know, some of it, you can't exactly tell whether some of it's directly his vision or not, but whatever, you know, it's kind of conveying, he knows she's pregnant. Um, you know, it's conveying, uh, that his visions, you know, in the book, they're very painful for him. He's seeing war, he's seeing uh, violence. Uh, so I like that, you know, that twist on it. Um, so I, I think that he did, it was very Lynchian, but in this way, it was strong. Yeah, kick that over to you, Brian. Like the, these these moments where it's like, this is certainly a signature of our director, or it's just like a, like this was a wow moment that was really outside of the plot itself, or just like that was cool how they did it. I'm not, it's not something I have earmarked as a weakness to this film, but Paul's dreams and later on his waking uh, visions uh, basically are a, an essential part of the story. Now, you, I can take or leave how they did that, but I would definitely say that it's ne- uh, necessary. Yeah, and, and, and as far as other like necessary visuals, we get to Arrakis. And then we get the worms. Oh, I mean, they're solid. I, I That's one thing that they have done very well across uh, different media. Um, it was great in the 90s video game. It was great in this movie. It's great in the new movie. It's great in the Sci-Fi Channel miniseries, even despite having a low budget. Um, I, I think that that's probably one of the more uniform across uh, all the different uh, visuals that they've kind of kept. I I personally, um, if I were to rank them, <laughs> I would say new movie, 1984, then miniseries in terms of like the film and TV adaptations. Um, that's I know Brian likes the miniseries definitely more than I than I do. It's I I like it, but like I said, I like all Dune adaptations. But in terms of the worms, I think the um, it's almost a toss up for me. I I do think the 84 worms are really good. I like how their their mouths open in like the three different sections. Uh, yeah. Which I th- I think he didn't say three in the book, but he said that they open like a flower, um, which so in, in that way, it's actually more true to the book. And in the newer one, um, I don't want to say they did better than Frank Herbert, but we'll just say they're more realistic. And in my head, it's kind of more like a dinosaur or like how something really could be. Um, but I do like I think that the design is really good in the 80s movie. 
the first time you get to see a worm is is equivalent to the first time you read about the worm. Like that scene is the initial, you know, it's it's Leto recognizing worm sign, heading for a harvester. A harvester doesn't get picked up. He risks the life of him himself and his son to to save the people. And and that's actually something I'll give uh, I'll give kudos to this movie on because it's one of my absolute favorite parts of the book is when. Uh, Liet Kynes realizes, you know, this man, you know, he's angry and he risked his life and the life of his son to save the men and not the spice. A, a leader like that could command fanatic loyalty. And that and is what worry. ends up happening. That's the worry it, of yeah, the emperor so is that he's beca- Leto's becoming too, too popular with the people. And, uh, yeah, I, 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 I know, yeah, what Dr. Kynes was saying, like, uh, and you get, you get that in a voiceover. Could you have gotten that from a conversation later or even just, um, you know, good, good body acting? You probably could have. Um, even if it's just like a, you know, like a friendly nod or something. I, I, I don't know. Um, and, it's, but it's also something that they've done differently each time they've attempted it. So this one was an inner monologue, which is how it is in the book. Then you have the uh, sci-fi channel miniseries. He, he verbalizes it to Gurney Halleck. And then in the new movie, they don't even really say anything about it. So I just, I, I always felt like that was an essential piece to show you the diff, you know, one of the core and key differences between House Atreides and House Carino or House Harkonnen, because the the Atreides coin is this honor, this this willingness to sacrifice for one another, and I I just feel like that's such a crucial part of the story. This is just a a really small detail from that scene, but one thing that I another thing I I preferred about this film. Um, very, very small detail, uh, was the inside, definitely not the outside, but the inside of the ornithopter that the Atreides are riding in is kind of quilted in this like Bentley-like leather, which I'm like, that is, that seems more like what a royal, you know, family would be, that, that would be their helicopter or their ornithopter or whatever. Like it seemed realistic that it had this texture and it was very, you know, plush. Whereas in the new one, it was a lot more like a military helicopter. And I was like, would they really be in that? <laughs> so I don't know. I, that little detail, I thought it was just like the, the, the attention to detail and the set design in this film is, is really good. Um, but I also thought that that scene had one of the cheesier voiceovers, which actually was when um, when Leah Kynes was talking about the Duke or, or voiceovering the Duke. And he's like, I have to admit, against my better judgment, I like this Duke. And I was like, that sounded sensual. <laughs> it did. <laughs> it, you know, and I was like, it hmm, did. I know that look. You know, I, I don't know. I was just like, I don't know. <laughs> I think there's a lot of examples like that. So uh, ignore me if I, if I, no, uh, that, keep I, I actually, them up. I felt that strange. I felt that strange too. Um, I, I think, um, what else can we talk about with spice in general? Because, uh, you know, you, Talk about the worm. The worm is the spice. The spice is the worm. Uh, spice allows the Bene Gesserit to do some of the things they can do, including using the voice, not the force, the voice. Uh, but we have like this spice allows for uh, maybe you guys can elaborate a little bit like folding through time. If that's not the coolest way to travel in space is to fold time oh. into itself. I don't know what I don't know what is. I can answer these. Okay, I'll start with the Bene Gesserit because I 
I just keep going back to that, but then I'll, then I'll go into uh, the guild and folding space. So um, basically with the Bene Gesserit, one thing I left out that's like really important is that they have all these abilities and powers without the spice, like the voice, things like that. Um, they, you know, they've, they've been, I, I, I hate the word crossbreeding or whatever, but they've, they've been, you know, um, basically creating, getting these powers over time by, um, like the, the voice, they have these, um, not Kung Fu type powers, but like the, the ways of fighting, like all these things that you learn as a Bene Gesserit. That's why she was able to like best, um, the Stilgar. Steelgar, thank you. She's like able to best Steelgar as soon as she meets him physically because that was a Bene Gesserit skill, that fighting. So all of that is the type of stuff that they learn at the school. It's it's not it's when they take the spice that they can like access that other memory that uh, it's like it's like accessing it it wakes up a part of the brain that's never awake otherwise. Uh so yeah, uh but the the, the folding through space, the guild. The, we not enough information on the guild in this movie. Yeah, that that piece was more. I think um, I think a lot of people, and, and it didn't. Re- they didn't explain this in the new movie at all. So it, I haven't really seen it much. Maybe in the miniseries, Brian, if you remember. But the way I think it's more the ships, the that the guild highliners have an engine that is what is actually folding space. Isn't the spice just what the navigators use so that they don't hit stars? I think it's the it's just so that they have foresight to steer around stars because supposedly in the past like one out of every 10 uh tr- you know times that those ships traveled they would they would just disappear and they wouldn't know what happened and they thought they were probably hitting things before they had the guild but when they had the guild and they had these people who were taking spice for like hundreds of years and turning into the the wor- those worm looking things the the navigators they're the ones who are like steering basically through stars so that's what the, that's why the spice like aids in space travel and, and they actually mention in the book that that an avenue that was open to Paul was to become a guild navigator because that precognition is something that they look for in their um, in their navigators. So if you have a you know uh, if you're already sensitive to it and the spice just makes it stronger, then then that's a thing. So. It, there is a point where he has to think about like after the fall of house Atreides, where he's like, what options are open to me? You know, where can I go from here? Uh, that would, that would make sense. And he, he does have a second where he's like, well, you know, I could always be a guildsman because that's, you know, that's where my skill set could lie. Uh, no, I think that, uh, I, I think that really my biggest point that I wanted to get across was I know that this gets a lot of uh, crap by by Dune loyalists, and I, I just don't think it needs to have that kind of uh, harassment. There oh there are people that are loyal to the book that say this movie is it, it, like I don't want to talk about that movie because I'm so much of a fan of the original. Correct. But like when when this came out, I imagine, and I actually wrote this down in my notes that there were probably people that said like this wasn't. Um, exactly what i wanted i remember we, we said that we talk about the weirding a little bit or the weirding way or the shields i think that technology um has advanced to the point where they made they fixed a lot of that inadequacy from like the shields that was a that was a you know high-handed trick back in the early 80s to have that you know to have it look like that so that was you know that was the height of luxury 
in terms yeah. of, uh, of having visuals like that at the time. But now we're like, oh, my God, look at that. So, you know, how, how very Tron of it. Um, but uh, it's, uh, you know, they as te- as our own technology is progressed and we can do, you know, CGI and stuff like that. You know, they they definitely have a different take on it in the new movie. Um, my thing about the weirding module, and I'm just going to, I guess, blow the tires off this right now. It is my change one thing. Uh, this is something that he completely fabricated. Uh, the weirding way that they're talking about of battle in the books is completely um, a, a martial art. It is uh, a way of controlling every uh, muscle in your body, whether large or small, and it it's gives the you Gesserit. a, yeah, a, a quickness that, that no one else has. So, when he made up this thing with sound, like that's where I'm tight. I'm talking about like fan fiction piece for this. It's, it's, he came up with something. He wanted to make it a gun. It's not a gun. I think the elegance to the book is the fact that, you know, sword fighting is, is in vogue in this time. So, um, it, it's definitely, I think if they had not gone that route for this movie, it would be astronomically better and better thought of. You you get some of this like blasting with this weird cube that's um that's in his hand. But what you really want to see is more of the like hand to hand movement style between um Fade and Paul at the end. That that's what I feel like would translate best to the movie screen. Would you agree with me, Ben? A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I feel the same the same way it's and and it's it's, again something the new movie does a fantastic job uh showing all the different fighting styles of the different factions within the film whether it's the harkonnens and or the sardaukar or the bene Gesserit, all of them have their moment um in in that way and there's a lot more of that uh in in that version i think in this version i this is another one of those things where it's like uh i don't want to call it a so bad it's good but it is camp and i still enjoy it you know whether it's the shields uh, some of the VFX mm-hmm. challenges, um, <laughs> yeah. and uh, you know, or the or the weirding modules, like the cha noise thing. I just, I, it's fun. It's, <laughs> it's fun to watch. It's an it's entertaining. So you know, for that, I can't even really fault it because at this point, it's you know, I, I I enjoy watching it, but it's not true to the source material. Um, so I understand the complaint, uh, and I would probably say if. You know, unless I choose another one at the last minute, that's that also was my choose one thing <laughs> to change. Well, you know, uh, I, speaking of the source material, it just makes me think this movie uh, really, really satisfied something in me. Uh, it had it had a little bit of it, so much so that it's almost forgotten, or at least uh, upon viewing only the movie. Um, too many movies include where it's not necessary romantic love. What we don't have here is romantic love. We have Shawnee. We have the person that Paul is in love with. Could that 45 seconds of having Shawnee on screen be completely edited out? Yeah. But I'll ask you both. Would it make our Herbert fans mad to not have that particular Fremen person in the in the movie? Um, I think it's essential for any director who has any aspiration whatsoever to make a sequel for a film to have. 
Um, obviously, their their children come into play prevalently going forward in the timeline. So um, I would say that it's an easy 15 to 20 seconds to toss in just to, <laughs> to leave that, that door open. Uh-huh. I don't know. You know, I've, I think in the source material, that character isn't fleshed out very well. And I, I've, I know that, and I, I, I could definitely see some fans, you know, not loving this comment, but I just, I feel like uh, I'm excited to see if the new movie does flesh it out uh, even better. Cause I, I think I can see what you're saying. It's at least in the 84 version, it's a bit of a hollow character uh, from my perspective. So I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see where they go with it in the future, but it wasn't from my perspective that different in the book from the, from the Lynch version miniseries in the, in the miniseries does this character matter to the grand scheme of things more or is the character just more fleshed out in terms of the relationship with uh paul maudib uh yes yes to all of it so oh, cool. basically cheney ends up being a much in a similar situation as lady jessica um, there's a lot of parallels that get drawn between the two characters and and paul's um, you know, situation, uh, whether to marry her or not as well. So it's, it's, it's basically say, you know, it's one of those pieces where you can say, look at everything we've changed, but we're still victims of some of the things that we couldn't. And, um, you know, with the miniseries you get, yeah, it didn't have a budget and there's a lot of cheese to it. It's very Buffy, the vampire slayer because it didn't have a budget, <clears throat> but, they do go into all of the training, the, uh, you know, more characters, more background. And when you give something like this, the, you know, four plus hours that it really takes to do it justice. And I would even argue that you could go six and, you know, this is one of those movies that it literally could have been the longest movie ever. And I would have been fine with it just because the more they fit in, the happier I am. 100% agreed. Well, you know what I'd love to fit in? Some movie superlatives for the movie Dune. So, uh, Ben, as our guest, you're going to go first. Who's your MVP here? I say Francesca Annis, personally. Yeah, you definitely spoke her praises earlier. Um, and and I, I would say it's a it's not just a glam moment. It's She, she does portray uh, this caring and these emotions deeply. Yeah, she does. I, I think that... Um... You know, her character is a really tough one because she's um, basically she's like a queen and a warrior and um, she's a part of this sisterhood. And it's like she's not she's the romantic love interest of this man, but she's not his wife. It's it's not traditional at all in, in terms of a character. And it's like not easy. Uh, it, it could easily uh, be difficult for the audience to understand. Um, but I, I think that um, in pretty much every iteration uh i think it's just a strong character at its core it's a very good character well-written character in the book um very fleshed out in every version that i've seen and, and francesca annis definitely doesn't disappoint she on all of those levels you know um she's she's physically um you know when she's beating up steelgar and uh, when she's um kind of reading people like dr ua with some suspicion you know every look on her face i, I i'm always uh I'm definitely um, happy with, you know, every every moment that she gives. Uh, but really what, what's cool about her is not necessarily the connection with Leto, uh, that she right. has a full 
full-fledged other source of emotions and power and connections and political intrigue on her own and the connection with her son. Very cool. You don't need to pass the Bechtel test. You can just write a good character. I'm with you, man. Um, I'm, that's actually mine as well. So uh, we can get to Brian. Who's your MVP? Uh, I went with a cinematographer, Freddie Francis. Um, I think there are a lot of fun things that they uh, did in this movie. I think some of the things he tried to do that maybe didn't pan out as well were ahead of their time. And had he had uh, better tech to, to perform it, it would have made it even even better. This is still a a fairly visually engrossing film, like Ben said, even with the flourishes they have of the ships going into the to the larger guild highliner. Um, I, I just I really appreciate the look. Oh yeah, yeah, same here, same here. Good choice, Brian. All right, your best supporting actor, Ben. Um, I would say definitely. I don't know how to pronounce her name. Uh, Sean Phillips or Sion Phillips, uh, who played the Reverend Mother, uh, Gaius Helen Mahayam. I think um, she was, there were definitely, again, I feel like I say this with every character, but there were moments of camp uh, with her. But I, her voiceovers were actually one of some of the only ones I understood where, she, you know, she left the throne room of the emperor, but she was still listening, which isn't quite how their powers work, but fine when she's just like, here it comes. <laughs> like her voice is kind of like a Morgan Freeman or a Maya Angelou or like just someone who has one of those voices that just sticks with you, which is I think probably why they cast her because that character is supposed to just hold this, this power and poise. Um, and she really nails it in my opinion in the, in this film. Cool. Good choice. Yeah. Strong presence. Uh, Brian, your best supporting actor. Uh, I went with uh, Patrick Stewart as Gurney Halleck in this. Um, I will admit that par part of this is because Gurney Halleck is my favorite character in the in the Dune series. Um, but Patrick Stewart, man, I mean, like that's I I've I've always loved his casting in this role, and um, yeah, so that was an easy layup for me. Oh, I just realized that I didn't use his quote about moods as my best quote. Uh, well, oh, I totally did. <laughs> yeah, well, I totally then, did. Well, then we'll get to it. But I would say my best supporting is actually uh, Brad Dourif as, uh, is it Pitar or Pitar? The man Pitar. 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 Pitar DeVries. Every moment he was on screen, I was really digging what he was laying down. It was... Um, he get he has a reputation with some of the other characters he's played, but I thought that um his uh, little eccentricity, uh, quick speaking. I didn't know the thing about what Mentats were until you all told me about it, but now it completely fits as to like what he is. Um, and he had a seemingly an individual personality as opposed to just working for the Baron. Um, and I thought that was really neat. And there were some other characters too that. You could very much tell they had their own like drives, but uh, I think um, Brad Dourif as Hyder uh, did, did a great job portraying that hidden gem. Ben, um, I would say Dean Stockwell as Doctor Wellington Yui. Um, he, I think, it's just it was probably his chemistry with Francesca Annis in the moments when they're discussing his wife um, and why. Um, well, they didn't discuss why or what happened to his wife, but I, I just think the expressions on his face um, do a lot, and the same with hers. So it's kind of a an electric moment. 
R.I.P. as well. He uh, he passed recently. Yeah, Doctor Yui. Another another thing. Like you can you can take some time with every single character. Uh, Brian, your your hidden gem. Uh, my hidden gem for this is the Duke's pug. Like there's there's no dog there's no dog in the book. I I didn't even think about it until I this the rewatch for this and I was like, this dog come from? And mm-hmm. so I look it up. I, I look it up online. I wanted to see if it was like David Lynch's dog or something like that. And I did actually find a lot of Reddit forums that talk about the Duke's dog, who eventually is literally seen again being carried by Gurney Halleck yep. into battle. And I was like, all right, that's kind of cool, too. And the best comment I saw on any of it was uh, it's uh, the Kwisatz Hatterpug. <laughs> Kwisatz Hatterpug. I will say this brings my streak of movies with dogs being brought into battle to two, uh, as the last movie I did for the podcast was Apocalypse Now. So that's, uh, hey, dogs in, in, in firefights. Uh, it's a new trend for 2021. Uh my uh, hidden gem, I, I guess I have two. I can't not mention that David Lynch was uh, one of the spice miners. Um, he loves, you know, being in it's his own one. stuff. Uh, so I, I like that, even though it can't be hidden, really. Um, I'm going to say as far as like a gem performance, I'm going to go with Everett McGill as Stilgar. All right, tough one here. The recast. Ben, who would you recast in this movie? Um, This one's kind of controversial, but the character was also kind of polarizing so i would say uh kenneth mcmillan as the baron um i think that as a as a kid he scared me um but you know as i grew up i i feel like the um the over the topness was just a bit too much he did a lot of yelling and kind of whining which i had the same complaint about the emperor i, I think they were both a little bit miscast um and i think that they should have taken a little bit more of a less is more approach like a clint eastwood or um even meryl streep in the devil wears prada it's like you know, you're more afraid of a softer, you know, like calm person who can kind of contain themselves. And I don't know, just as a villain, I didn't feel like, like he was um, super intimidating. So um, I think they might've been able to do, do better than that. Brian, that is going to be your recast. Who do you recast? Uh, I actually went after Kyle on this one. Um, I also don't like uh, how old he is portraying Paul as, um, I think something like a, you know, like a river Phoenix or something like that would have been the age that I'm picturing in my head. I think he's about a decade younger than, um, Kyle. He needs to be young. He needs to seem young. It, it, it's, it, I mean, Timothy Chalamet really was a good casting choice because I think he can bring an older person's gravitas and stoicism to the role while still being perceivable as, as a younger person. So I was really, I mean, I can, I can gush hardcore about the casting for this new movie, but yeah, yeah. it always bothered me a little bit that, um, that he was so old in this one. Mm. Not that, that, Kyle did a bad job or anything. It's, you know, I, I like him fine. It's just, I, I wish it was a younger actor. The, Even the, if it was a younger him. They use the makeup and the hairstyle well. Like, that particular hairstyle can make you seem young. They do the same thing with Jackie Chan in Kung Fu movies, is they change his hair up a lot yeah, to make him seem young. Um, my recast is, is, is strange, especially after listening to, to y'all and, and give me more depth to these characters that I didn't have. Uh, for me, the, the Emperor seemed, uh, maybe it was the character himself that I just didn't understand 
how he was supposed to be. Um, but I just took, uh, instead of Jose Ferrer, I really like uh, the guy who plays Dr. Kynes, uh, Max von Sydow. Mm. Oh, yeah. And I was thinking, like, if I want a powerful uh, character to be portrayed by a great actor, then I'm going to just, like, pick him up out of that other role as Kynes and move him into the Emperor. Thing is, I don't, I don't really know what, what, like, what he's supposed to be. It is cool that he's, like, so easily influenced by everyone else. Uh, as opposed to maybe the other franchises where Emperor really does like rule everything hard, he's just kind of like being pulled in every different direction. Um, and so maybe Max von Sydow wouldn't be great for that type of character, but um, that's my recast. Yeah, that's actually a sorry. I just wanted to say that, like I said, it was kind of a toss up for me between the Baron and the Emperor. I, I felt like both of them, um, you know, the Emperor is supposed to be a little bit insecure and a little bit. Uh, afraid of the Atreides, but he's supposed to be formidable as well. So, um, and I didn't get that. I, I didn't feel like anyone in the story was afraid of this emperor. Yeah. So, totally. In, <laughs> yeah, totally he did agree. seem. He 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 was he was a little. Uh, he was pretty weak. Um, and just in terms of, he seemed very soft. Everybody's telling him to shut up and stuff like that. I don't feel like the the emperor would have put up with any of that. Yeah, I think we're all in agreement there. He did not seem formidable. Good word. Um, let's go with our best shot, Ben, of the movie. Best shot. Um, I'm going to say the best shot for me is probably, we've mentioned it already, but when the, um, when the guild arrives, or, or when the Atreides ships are flying into the guild highliner, um, that's probably my favorite shot. No, Just that, with, one, like, the... that one doesn't have like the the cartoonish looking screws in space, right? We're, we're talking of something different. I'm thinking of the ones they look like they're just little stickers that somebody just put a sticker on the screen, the screw looking ships. It's, it is that scene, but it's not, but it's not the, it's not the, it's when it kind of zooms in and you have like the golden, like gilded opening. Um, yeah. And you, and then you have the ships flying in. I don't know. Like, even though I didn't, it wasn't a stylistic choice that I, you know, I, as I've said, I've preferred other adaptions, um, you know, of, of the highliners and everything. But I, I don't know. I, I liked the, like, the geometry of how they made that work. Cool. What, uh, what's your best shot, Brian? Uh, my best shot was uh, him walking forward away from the line of Fremen in the background uh, to ride yeah. the worm the first time. I, I feel like that's fairly iconic of the of the film. Uh, it actually lived as my Facebook uh, banner for several months. So it's, it's, it's probably my favorite shot of, of this film. That's cool. Yeah. And that is a memorable shot. Uh, mine is memorable, but I wish things would have changed afterwards. It is uh, the shot of fade coming out of like that smoke chamber where he's only wearing like the metallic Eagle speedo. He looks like he's ready to mess some stuff up. And instead, this adaptation of, of the movie just kind of has him do very little before a minute-long fight. Uh, I would have loved to see, okay, we got Sting. We got Fade. Let's do something cool. And instead, we just kind of have the only opportunities that fall flat, unfortunately, to me. Uh, but I did love that shot. Yeah. Uh, best scene, Ben? Um, I think my favorite scenes, the Reverend Mother giving Paul the Gomjabar test. Um, like I said, I think that's just my favorite performance. Um, and 
I think in the book, it's a very like sacred, you know, scene to Dune fans. I feel it's it's just very unique, and it kind of just gets everything started. And it's your it's your oracle moment in the beginning of the Odyssey or whatever. Like it's your um, it's that part of the story. And I just think there's like an anticipation and um, and it's pretty dark, you know, with like she's like smiling with the metal teeth, and you have the box, and his hand is burning, and um, I don't know. I, I think it's just a very unique. Yeah, I've got to ditto him on that. It is a it is a, a, a fairly sacrosanct scene for for Dune fans, and and it's definitely mine as well. For me, I, my my best scene I think is um, it's got to be with the Fremen. And now I'm thinking about the scene where he's walking away from the line of Fremen towards the worm. I think I think that was my first inclination was that plus actually getting up on the worm. Now we have some I'm not going to say clunkiness, but it is kind of a little silly to see what you would imagine is Kyle McLaughlin in front of a green screen, just like putting down a stake and tying a rope, and then walking to the other side of the room and tying down a stake and putting down a rope. But it does feel like he's doing something special. Um, but I like the whole scene. I I might have sounded like I was um, poking fun at it earlier, but the whole idea of the the scene that explains how Paul is leading the Fremen to like in training, you know, and and getting them amped up for what his next command is. That sort of, I guess, it's not quite a montage, but like that scene of we are seeing what the this particular force who has now been given this new fighting gift can do. Uh, it makes it, it kind of made me feel like a rallying cry, like, "All right, now I'm really on Team Fremen. Let's see them go mess some stuff up." Um, I felt like energized uh, to get through like the next the next thirty or forty minutes until the end of the movie. I thought that was pretty cool. All right, let's talk yeah. about uh, either a wardrobe or a makeup moment. Uh, what's the best one that stands out to you, Ben? I would probably say it's it's kind of a toss up for me between two. Again, sorry, I'm like Reverend Francesca Mother, guys, guys, Helen Mahayim again, but um, probably her. Uh, I, I love when she and the other Benny Gesserit are in those like leathery hooded, um, yep. you know, coming in the rain. Uh, and then you see Francesca Annis with the, the hood, with the fur. Um, just that moment, all the costumes there um, are really good. And then the other one, I would say, I, I really like what um, fades um, almost kind of... Um, it's not medieval, but like 15th century looking collar, but it's leather right before he fights Paul. Um, yeah. Just the costuming in, the, in that room uh, that the Har- Har- Conan royalty is wearing is, is very strong to me, too. Yeah, that's a cool... That, and you see in that same room very early, uh, you see a lot of... Uh, uh, everyone's wearing black in that scene, but like you, you see these different like futuristic styles. You can choose what you want that to look like when you're a filmmaker, and I think the choices for those costumes were cool. Yeah, uh, a lot of texture. Yeah, totally. Uh, Brian, what about your best wardrobe or makeup moment? I actually do go uh, with uh, Benny Gesserit here, specifically the scene where she's eavesdropping on the conversation between the uh, the guildsman and the emperor. Like everything is very flowy. Like it has like she sweeps herself well with it when she sits down. I I think that is memorable. Yeah. Yeah, mine is actually going to be the Baron. It's a makeup moment. They you, you hit it on the on the head. It's just so nasty, uh, and and I think it's it's purposefully done that this is gross. Um, and then you pair that the the boils. There's that particular phobia where like like 
natural holes in things like make you sick. Like yeah. you almost get sick at looking at him. And then you pair it with, and now he's going to start flying around. Now you're dripping this black liquid on him and he's going to pull the heart plug out on this little kid. Uh, I think <laughs> it, it does its job of like, that's freaky. Didn't you say like when you were younger, like it kind of freaked you out? A little bit, yeah. I, I was always like drawn to horror films, so like that aspect of this, I was um, intrigued. Um, and I, yeah, I think when I was younger, I was more intimidated by him than yeah. you know. Well, and before you see him, you actually see two or three of the people working on him with their lips sewn shut and their ears sewn shut, and yeah, like that little aspect of of oh, we're going to make these guys like they're auditioning for Hellraiser. Yeah, oh, right. right. So, um, Good reference. <laughs> yeah, um, let's change something about this movie. What's the one thing you would change, Ben? Um, Brian already said it. I would change the weirding modules to, you know, be closer to the, um, the martial art that was, I, I think I actually could be wrong. Cause I don't completely remember this part of the book, but I think it was like, they were teaching them Benny Gesserit skills, the Fremen, um, which is, it's more, it's more of a martial art that the Benny Gesserit kind of, so that's something it's almost like the you know the Benny Gesserit messed up by allowing them to kind of get away from their control and then they're out with the Fremen and they're able to raise this war using the powers that they kind of secretly have um that's what the that weirding way is supposed to be about um you know the Benny Gesserit losing that control and then we don't get any of that we just get the guns yeah <laughs> um, we get a little well, I'll, gun. I'll I'll bring this up too giving the Fremen this way of doing battle or this discipline that the Bene Gesserit have was almost not even necessary before he was sure. training them to be crack troops uh, in the book. They go into how many uh, Sardaukar were lost hunting Fremen while they were on planet and how, uh, how, you know, how they covered it up basically because they're supposed to be these fearsome best warriors in the galaxy and they're just getting trashed by the Fremen before they had the weirding way. Yeah. Oh yeah. And that that's de definitely, um, and yeah, I don't think you get to really see enough of what the Sardaukar could be or what they are. Um, that's just, that was something that like I put on a shelf that like, you know, if, if I put more time into it, I could think like of how cool they could be. You don't really get that in this movie. I'd very much be interested in hearing your opinions on, on this part um, after you've seen the new movie. Me too. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, uh, sorry, which one are we on? This is uh, – what would you change, Brian? Oh, change I, already, I already went through it. It was, it was the weirding module. I, I, I let mine go ah, early yeah. uh, since, since we brought it up. But yeah, 100%. I think that this movie gets – one to two stars out of ten better reviews on IMDb and critics and and people if that wasn't how they went with it. I think that that, that it had that big of an impact, that change um, had that big of an impact on its reviews. Yeah, yeah if the, it, it does really stand out. And it also contributes to, I think, just does the movie hold up? I think it's it kind of just stands in your way of of whether or not of what you would want from it. My, my change. One thing is uh, I, I just, and I know I kind of revealed mine a little early, but I think they painfully underused sting. He's not an actor, but they underused him. Uh, the, the, the character's cool. His, his brother's cool. The little nephews of the Baron there, there, there could be so much there. If, if we're only going to do a little bit of this whole world, 
and you're going to introduce only some of this this huge cast of 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 cool influences and characters uh just to have a small taste like that uh is uh painful since so that was sad for me since you mentioned that twice i'm just going to say really quick um you know there there is a gladiatorial scene with fade in the book that's really cool that a, a lot of fans are big fans of um and where a lot of people are there's a lot of rumors that that's going to be hopefully in part two of the new movie so we'll see <laughs> cool all right well, and and i'll finally watch it there's astronomically more Thade Ralpha uh, in the book than than there is in yeah in the movie. All right, last one, best quote, Ben. What's your best quote of this movie? I don't even understand exactly what she means when she says this, but when Francesca Annis just is like, "A million deaths are not enough for Yui," um, that's definitely my favorite. That quote on... is in the book. It's a chapter starter in the book, and. I don't feel like they gave good context to it then either. Like it just kicks off a chapter. Um, and like I know it she's was saying weird... all these traitors right. are dying and it's all because of Yui, but I don't know, but it's, but the way she delivers is great. And it's, but it's it, memorable in the context of where she used it. Yeah. I, I remember being like, why would they plug that in there? Right. It's funny. I don't know. It's, I don't even yeah. know if it's, I would say it was good. It's just my favorite. Yeah, it, and, and it's emotional. Uh, Brian, your best quote. Mood is a thing for cattle and love play. <laughs> yeah, it's really love. good. It's really that, good. Uh, that, is, that is a quote that I think has made it in every Dune anything. Like that that, that quote survives. Good, that Gurney makes me happy. Is, it needs to be. Gurney Halleck's quote quotes period is just it's it's one of the reasons i like him so much uh they bring it up in the book at one point duke leto it's he he says some quote before he leaves a conference and leto goes one day i'll find that man without a quotation and he'll seem undressed all right my best quote it is by will alone i set my mind in motion it is by the juice of safu that thoughts acquire speed that lips acquire stains that stains become a warning it is by will alone i set my mind in motion I love that character. I love the way he speaks, yeah, and whatever that is, I'm in. Like, I just the, it gave me it gave me a little taste of something, and I needed to learn more, and I never got a chance to. But I I really thought that was cool. Uh, yeah, that the mentats have stained lips or something, something like that. Or is that something? You, yeah. Well, what's what's that so, about? So I, I actually can't wait to hear your opinion of Piter in the new film as well. I absolutely love the actor they got to play him. He is not in it enough. It, not in oh, it enough. Gosh. But he's, yeah, yeah he's dude, good. He's, he is a phenomenal Piter DeVries. Hey, this is this will be one of those uh, like bonus content things that we do. Retro movie roundtable after dark where I, I go and watch yeah. the new Dune. Yeah. And then we, we <laughs> and jump then, back on. Yeah, cool. We'll do like a 30-minute a a, a reaction video, 30-minute yeah. reaction video. All right, Ben, it's time to give this movie a rating. Uh, we go from uh, 0.5 is the worst that we can rate and five stars is the highest, and we do have star increments. I don't know if with the rest of your family members on the podcast, if you uh, will not choose to do half-star ratings. Brian Fry, known only to use integers, uh, but we do use half-star ratings. What would be your rating for Dune from 1984? I mean, if it's a half star rating, and if I'm being really critical, I'll, I'll say a 2.5. And if it's if it's an integer, I'll give it a three because 
it rounds up. Um, you know, I I think the visual effects, um, some of the the awkwardness and some of the um, mostly just the clunky screenplay, like the, I can't ignore <laughs> those things, and it, it some sometimes they do bother me, but I enjoy it enough. Um, you know, just regardless, and I love the, you know a lot of the visuals. Um, and the story itself is kind of hard for me to not pay attention to, no matter who's adapting it. So, um, yeah, it's, it's somewhere in between. Um, and I have kind of a love hate relationship with this one. So two and a half or three, two and a half, we're going to, two and a half is, is we, we do go for the half stars. I think two and a half sounds more like what you're trying to say. Um, all right, Brian, what is going to be your star rating? Um, I gave this one four stars. It's definitely got flaws um and those four stars are purely fan driven um i would rather have something than nothing and until this uh this new movie came out it was really just this this movie and the miniseries to go around with, go along with the source material so i wasn't willing to sacrifice that for anything uh, <laughs> regardless of how distasteful i found some of the changes so uh yeah i give it a four star i've lived with this movie uh for a really long time and uh it's you know, it's got a special place. Like I said, I, I just compartmentalize what I don't like about it so I can still like it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. Um, you know, and, and sometimes when you're a fan of a movie to give it the fair rating that it deserves, like it's, it's tough to do or it's easy to do. Like for, mm-hmm. for me, it's tough. For me, it's just like I that's one of my favorite movies, but. You know what? It's like a three at best. That's uh, for what me. I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, it is one of my favorites. Yeah, but. no, I hear you. Yep. So this movie's awesome, uh, but visually, there's a lot that doesn't hold up. Uh, it clearly needs more time. Uh, I feel like if I were a fan of this when the movie came out, I would say this is a movie that I didn't like if I read the book. You know, some movies are good, and then there's a change that can make them a little bit better, and that's cool. This movie's good, and then there are certain changes that could have made this movie incredible made it a lasting legacy for American filmmaking forever. We don't have that. And because we don't have that, I feel like it detracts from what this movie could be. Uh, It's held back by some attention that it pays to things that don't affect the end product at all, and that that, that time is something we'd rather have put into something else. So for me, it doesn't even hit the four-star mark. It is a 3.5. Do enjoy the movie. Wouldn't mind coming back to it at any time. Uh, Some of the stuff about it is just glaring. And that'll kind of put a little bow on our Dune podcast. We still have a little bit left to do. Brian, can you help me select a movie for next time? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Well, you know, we talked about Miracle on 34th Street a little earlier. Tis the season. Option number one, A Muppet Christmas Carol from 1992. The Muppet characters tell their version of the classic tale of an old and bitter miser's redemption on Christmas Eve. Option two, Zombie Strippers from 2008. Gee, what could this one be about? Hey, they'll dance for a fee, but devour you for free. Option three, the Santa Claus from 1994. When a man inadvertently makes Santa fall off his roof on Christmas Eve, he finds himself magically recruited to take his place. Which one of these do you think we should do on the podcast? I'm going to choose option one Muppets, but I got to tell you that there's a percentage of my brain that just wants to watch the world burn and do the zombie strippers. <laughs> it's a Christmas classic. Um, well, hey, before I, I say our farewell, I want to thank our guest, Ben. Very nice to uh, podcast with you. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I'm glad that you yeah, had a chance. Yeah, thanks for being here, brother. 
yeah any any anybody who's willing to talk about dune for two hours is uh works for me and we're willing to give that platform thank you once again and thank you all the lords ladies and knights of the retro movie roundtable we invite you to reach out to us we want to hear from you subscribe rate and review to us on itunes spotify stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts give us a like on facebook follow us on twitter at movie underscore retro email us at retro movie roundtable at yahoo.com producing and providing this podcast is fun but not free we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash retromovieroundtable. Any contribution is much appreciated and will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thanks for listening, be good to each other, and watch more movies. Brian? What the hell are we supposed to use, man? Harsh language?